Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Steph Storer, and this is Ask the Expert. Today's episode is a fun one because not only do we get to talk to a great friend to the show, the one and only author historian Tracy Borman, but our topic today is the ever fascinating, crowd pleasing Elizabeth I. Without further ado, hello, Tracy. Hi, Steph. It's lovely to chat to you again. Oh, thanks for being here. So I thought a previous Ask the Expert that we did about Arthur Tudor really took the cake as far as engagement and listener questions. But I'm telling you, today's episode is is going to be so big because so many people wrote in with questions and comments today. That's great. And so yeah. It is. It's really great. So I'll do my best to cover everything that everybody asked us. Um but I'll try not to keep you here for, you know, 5,000 questions as <laughs> I can do. So we'll kick things off right now. Let's get started with our first question here. Um, we all know that she is the daughter of Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII's second wife. Did Elizabeth start out with a relationship at all with her mother as a, as a young girl? This is such a pertinent question to me at the moment because um, I've literally been spending the day writing about this. It's my next book is all about Anne Boleyn and her relationship with Elizabeth. So what what better question to start with? Um, yes. Uh, so, of course, Elizabeth was incredibly young at the time of her mother's execution. She was less than three years old when Anne was put to death in May 1536. So the theory is that they couldn't have had a relationship, but actually the exact opposite was the case. Even though she was expected to have a, and you know, Henry wanted her to have a son and, and she gave birth to a daughter and doted on Elizabeth from the very beginning. You know, she showered her with presents. She had a, a special velvet cushion made so that Elizabeth could be placed next to her when she was sort of holding court. Um, and then when Elizabeth was established in her own household, Anne would visit whenever she could. She would send presents. She would be forever corresponding with Elizabeth's household. So they definitely had a relationship while Anne was alive. But that relationship grew and became more profound, ironically, after Anne's death. And she was such an influence on Elizabeth. Elizabeth had learned so much from her mother's example, partly what not to do. She'd learned the dangers of marriage and childbirth. But also, I think Anne was a really inspiring role model for her daughter. And she had a profound impact on Elizabeth's queenship. So yeah, what a fascinating relationship. I could fill the whole time just talking about that. Was she ever told anything about Anne Boleyn later in life that might have muddled kind of what she remembered then as a child? Because she definitely didn't have the best reputation. 
later. So was Elizabeth kind of fed any misinformation about her mother? Well, I think here is where Anne Boleyn was very clever because uh, she made sure uh, that she chose the people who were going to surround her daughter. So it was a Boleyn-dominated household. They, uh, most of the women who served the young Elizabeth were relatives of her mother or friends or associates in some way. So I think Elizabeth was surrounded by very, very positive influences. And we don't really have much record of her hearing anything to contradict the view that her mother was uh, somebody to be absolutely admired. And in fact, uh, later on when she was queen and she read this defamatory book about Anne Boleyn that had been published in France, calling her, you know, the concubine and the scandal of Christendom. Elizabeth was furious and she really went into battle on her mother's behalf and uh, refuted everything that it said in this book. So, I think really it was a, a very positive atmosphere for Elizabeth in terms of the messages she was getting about her mother. So once her mother did pass, obviously Henry VIII went on to have several more wives. Was Elizabeth ever close with any of the others? Elizabeth was close, actually, uh, with two of her stepmothers. And uh, my own personal favourite was one of them, Anne of Cleves, um, who I think was a great influence on Elizabeth and taught her the art of pragmatism. She didn't stand on ceremony when Henry wanted an annulment. She gave it to him and she did very well out of it. But probably even closer to Elizabeth was her last stepmother, Catherine Parr, who was a huge influence on her. And it's from Catherine that Elizabeth really learnt to be a queen regnant because Catherine was regent for Henry when he went off to France uh, towards the end of his reign on one last gasp attempt at military glory. Catherine stayed behind and took charge of the country and invited Elizabeth to really accompany her, to watch her. Um, and, and I think that was a very formative experience for Elizabeth. And Catherine also shaped Elizabeth intellectually, she was very influential in Elizabeth's education and really inspired her with the reformist uh, principles that so guided her own life. So, yeah, Anne of Cleves and Catherine Parr, very, very real and very positive influences, I think, on Elizabeth. I think we had heard, we hear that about Catherine Parr pretty often, but that's really interesting to know that, that Anne of Cleves also was. That's great. Now, what about her relationships with her siblings. She had a sister and a brother. I mean, actually, if you want to mention any of the other half siblings that were out there too, you definitely can, because we did have a question about potentially Catherine Carey. Um, so we can talk about that too, but we'll start off with Mary and Edward. It's interesting because you might expect that Mary and Elizabeth would have had daggers drawn from the very beginning. Mary had every reason to hate Elizabeth. It was Elizabeth's mother that had ousted her own mother, Catherine of Aragon, and really destroyed Mary's life. And yet... Mary was a much kinder person than I think history gives her credit for. And she was also very strongly maternal. And I think she felt very sorry for her little sister, um, particularly after Anne's execution. And Henry had sort of made it clear that he didn't want anything to do with Elizabeth, didn't want any reminders of Anne Boleyn. And Mary actually spoke up for Elizabeth to Henry and begged him to look kindly on her. 
And the two sisters became quite close, but it was events and in particular religion that drove them apart. Once Mary was queen, and of course Mary was a very staunch Catholic, uh, their differences in opinion when it came to religious matters really became too hard to ignore. And Elizabeth tended to be a bit of a figurehead for those who opposed Mary. So they were on a bit of a collision course from there on in. As for Edward, uh, Elizabeth's uh, younger half-brother, they were much more of a mind. They were closer in age. Uh, they were educated together for a time. They were both raised in the Protestant faith. And so that really united them. And the letters that passed between them suggests genuine and quite abiding affection. It wasn't without incident, though, particularly when uh, Elizabeth was courted by uh, Edward's uncle, Thomas Seymour, uh, and there were rumours that he was planning to marry her without without Edward's permission when he was king, and that led to trouble. But um, the fact that Elizabeth survived that says much for her relationship with her half-brother. As for the uh, the other siblings, the illegitimate siblings, um, Elizabeth was always very, very close to the Careys. Um, so uh, the, the children of her aunt, Mary Boleyn, Anne Boleyn's sister, um, who may have actually been related to Elizabeth because it's rumoured that at least Catherine Carey uh, was Henry VIII's daughter and result of his affair with Mary Boleyn. And Elizabeth really looked after the Carey family. They enjoyed great favour during her reign. So there was no sense of shame about any of this. Elizabeth promoted them. She surrounded herself with, with Careys and other kind of Boleyn relatives. So uh, I think that as well is a real sign of how she felt about her mother's side of the family. Did Elizabeth ever acknowledge that there was that rumour about Catherine potentially being his daughter? No, not directly. I think she was too great a politician to do that. Um, But the very fact that she showed Catherine Carey such favour, she was one of her closest intimates, that really said it all, I think. Now, I know you just brought up um, Elizabeth potentially having, having been courted by Edward's uncle, Thomas Seymour. And I think that we know that everybody out there has questions about that whole situation, potentially wanting to marry her. Was it um, appropriate versus inappropriate? Some of the things. So we did get a couple of questions from our listeners about the situation between Elizabeth and Thomas Seymour. One of them was wondering if she had a secret child by him. And I probably know what you're going to say to that. But if you have anything to say kind of about the whole situation, let's start there. Let's talk about what you think happened between the two of them. Yeah, I do have an opinion on this. You're absolutely right. Um, first and foremost. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and of course, nobody knows for certain what went on. But any evidence of a sexual relationship between Elizabeth and Thomas Seymour and of a a secret child born of that relationship is purely circumstantial. Now, it is interesting that um, Elizabeth obviously did have kind of inappropriate relations with Seymour. How much they were driven by her is uncertain. I think it was more him. When she was living with uh, Seymour and uh, her stepmother, Catherine Parr, who married Seymour very soon after Henry VIII's death, at Chelsea, and there's a recorded incident of Catherine 
catching them in some kind of clinch. So, you know, the mind boggles. And soon afterwards, Elizabeth was obliged to leave Chelsea. And then she was reported to be sort of indisposed, unwell for a few months. Um, And later, there's a rumour of a midwife who was sent to attend some great lady in secret. And actually, it was Elizabeth, and she'd given birth to Seymour's child, and it was all hushed up. But, you know, I I don't set a great deal of store by this. I think Seymour was inappropriate towards Elizabeth, but I don't think it ever went as far as a full sexual relationship. And I think Elizabeth had learned too much already in her young life then uh, to avoid such a dangerous situation. So I do think she was the Virgin Queen. Um, I think the episode with Thomas Seymour really decided her, if she wasn't already, that she would remain the Virgin Queen. Okay, so now we're going to move ahead to when Edward passes away and we are looking for a new king or queen. Where was Elizabeth and what was she doing during the Jane Grey debacle? Well, you might not be surprised to know that Elizabeth was hedging her bets and seeing how events would turn out. She was at her house in um, Hatfield and she was really just watching and waiting to see what would happen, whether her half-sister Mary would take back the throne that really was hers by right until that last-minute alteration of the succession by their half-brother Edward, or uh, whether Lady Jane Grey would triumph and whether she would remain on the throne. Now, Elizabeth was always a great pragmatist, and she wasn't going to attach her colours to one or other of those women um, until it became certain or what the outcome was going to be. So she waited, she watched, and then, of course, she didn't have to wait very long until Lady Jane Grey was deposed and uh, Mary took the throne. And then, of course, Elizabeth came out in support and there was a very strong show of unity between the sisters as they paraded through London. But even then, I think the tensions were obvious because the cheers for Elizabeth were rather louder than those for her sister Mary. That's interesting. And now I know that as that was happening, there's still quite a bit of time before there's any more drama with the other two Grey sisters. That's later. So during this time, was Elizabeth close with Catherine and Mary Grey? Did they have a relationship when they were younger? Not that really is inferred by any of the surviving evidence. Certainly Elizabeth had had a relationship uh, with with Lady Jane Grey. They were both at Chelsea in Catherine Parr's household at the same time. So, uh, and, you know, they shared lessons and they they were sort of like-minded young women. But the same doesn't seem to extend to the other Grey sisters, to Catherine and to Mary. And in fact, Elizabeth, by the time she became queen, had a really negative view of those two, and Catherine in particular, she seems to have taken exception to and and saw as a rival, but probably for good reason, because of what had happened with Lady Jane Grey and uh, and Elizabeth's half-sister Mary. Uh, So no, I don't think there was any sort of positive relationship, at least, between Elizabeth and the other Grey sisters. Now, as we move ahead, kind of out of her childhood and out of the beginning stages of her life, we we go right into her love life. 
We, of course, have so many questions about this, and it's so hard not to talk about it because we definitely don't have the evidence that certain people really want, but it's like, it's just fun to talk about, right? And it's fun to hear different people's perspectives and and what your research has brought to your attention Mm -hmm. about her potential love life. And it would be the elephant in the room if we ignored Elizabeth's love life. Of course. How could we not? How could we not? You know, the question I am asked more than any other is, was she really the Virgin Queen? People just want to know this and quite right too. Um, Well, I've already, you know, made it clear what I think uh, and that she really was the Virgin Queen. But of course, that doesn't mean that there wasn't some activity in Elizabeth's love life. And the man we have to mention is, of course, Robert Dudley, later Earl of Leicester. Now, I do think he was the love of Elizabeth's life. Theirs was a 50-year relationship. They first met when they were eight years old. Um, They were in the Tower of London at the same time um, during Mary's reign. They had shared experiences, and they seemed to me to be soulmates, really. They had so much in common. It was a meeting of minds, but there was undoubtedly a strong physical attraction between them. And Elizabeth made no secret of the fact uh, that she favoured Robert Dudley above all others. She had his rooms at court move close to her own. She spent time with him when few others were present. And so, of course, there were rumours. But I firmly believe that Elizabeth had been shaped by the experiences of her childhood. She'd learned from the examples of the other women in the Tudor family, notably her mother and her half-sister Mary, uh, that you know it was just a dangerous world, marriage and childbirth. When, it, when you're in the royal family, you know, Elizabeth had quite rightly come to the conclusion you really just shouldn't go there. Um, and, and also, I think she'd had this tortuous path to the throne. And as she said, I will have but one mistress here and no master. She knew that if she married Dudley, uh, then she would be expected to give up her power to him, or at least some of it. And she didn't want to do that. Uh, But I think she did indulge in more than flirtation uh, with Dudley. I think there may have been a physical side to the relationship, but never a full sexual relationship because Elizabeth would never have risked uh, a pregnancy. Um, It would have absolutely ruined her. Um, and it, she would have scuppered any chance of any other marriage uh, should she have been so minded. Um, so I think she kept Dudley not quite at arm's length, but you know far enough away to avoid problems. I think that's such a great answer because it is it is also easy to forget when you talk about the black and white. Did they or didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, mean, there's, there's there's a lot the possibility of, of kind of things, right? Yeah. So great. Uh, so now what do you think that she thought or um, how she felt about the Amy Robsart death when Ooh, Dudley's wife passed away? That is fascinating, isn't it? Um, so the big question is, was Amy murdered? She was found dead at the bottom of a quite a short flight of stairs in her Oxfordshire home, Cumna Place. Was she uh, actually uh, the victim of just an accident Uh, Or was it suicide? Well, whatever the scenario, I firmly believe that Elizabeth had no hand in it whatsoever. Because even though there were rumours that she and Dudley had conspired his wife's death, it would have been counterproductive if the 
aim of that had been to to free Dudley up to marry Elizabeth because, of course, it would have associated her too closely with the scandal and she could never have married him. So I don't think Elizabeth was involved at all. I've always rather suspected that it was her chief advisor, William Cecil, who was behind it because he was desperate to stop Robert Dudley from marrying the Queen. And he knew that cooking up a scandal like this would effectively end any prospect of that marriage happening. Uh, But I think Elizabeth herself was completely blameless. This brief interruption is brought to you by, well, me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. So she's completely blameless, which is a fantastic theory, because that really helps how she looks for the rest of this conversation. So now she's blameless. Um, Poor Amy has passed away. We don't know what happened, but it was not a murder. You know, that remains a mystery. So now her favorite is free to be married again. We know that she does not take that opportunity. She does not end up marrying him. Um, but then he gets married again to, to, I'm sorry, to a friend of the family now. As you mentioned earlier, she had a great relationship with Catherine Carey. Catherine Carey's daughter ends up marrying the newly single, well, not so newly single, but now single favorite Dudley. Mm. So how did that go over? (laughs) That didn't go down too well with Elizabeth. Uh, She was furious when she found out that her favorite had married Latisse Knowles, uh, who was, you know, blood relative, as you say, uh, probably, of Elizabeth. And even though Elizabeth was quite decided in not wanting to marry Dudley herself, she didn't want anybody else to marry him. And Dudley knew that. And he and Latisse married in secret, but nothing remained a secret at the Tudor court for long. And when it was discovered... Elizabeth was incandescent with rage. She actually boxed Latisse's ears and sent her from court. She banished her from court. Now, it's interesting, she forgave Dudley a lot quicker than she forgave Latisse. In fact, she never really forgave Latisse. And actually, she later ordered the execution of Latisse's son, Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, although admittedly that was because he rebelled against her. But you can't help thinking, you know, revenge is a dish best served cold. Well, it's interesting that you say that she has, that she had never forgiven her because that's going to segue us nicely into our talk about her rivals or her frenemies, because I know that there's been a lot of drama about her. And so a lot of our questions from our listeners also were, asking about not only Latisse and um, how we had mentioned that there was some drama about around Catherine Gray. But the first, let's, let's start off this portion of the conversation now with Mary, Queen of Scots. Mm. So the first thing that we wanted to know was why had she never met her? Yeah, it's really interesting. They almost met 
a couple of times there were there was lots of talk of the two queens meeting and i can't help thinking things might have turned out rather differently if they had it tended to be elizabeth who backed out of meeting now i kind of think she was almost afraid to fall under Mary's spell. There was an awful lot of talk of how beguiling Mary was, how she charmed anyone who met her. And I think Elizabeth as well was intensely jealous of Mary. Well, she absolutely was. We know that from Ambassador's reports. And it's almost like she was afraid to have her paranoia confirmed really about how beautiful Mary was, how charismatic, how accomplished. And so they never met. And of course, uh, it had rather fatal consequences, or perhaps the same thing would have happened anyway. Uh, but it is quite extraordinary. Mary certainly wanted to meet. She kept pushing for it. But it was always Elizabeth, as I say, who backed out. Isn't that interesting? Um, yeah, I don't think I don't think that a lot of us knew that it was it was her backing out all the time. Mm, now, absolutely. moving forward with their relationship or lack thereof. Can you explain the role that Elizabeth had in the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots? We know mm. the story, but do you have any further details to paint us a picture about what really happened between those two? So Elizabeth truly agonized over putting Mary to death. She wanted to avoid it. She'd spent nearly 20 years avoiding it and, uh, and the pressure that her ministers put her under to finally vanquish the Queen of Scots. Um, but when Mary was implicated in the Babington conspiracy of 1586, really, there was nothing Elizabeth could do. You know, Mary had signed her own death warrant. But still, Elizabeth prevaricated. She agonized. And she knew it wasn't just a case of being squeamish about putting her blood relative to death. But she knew it was quite a dangerous precedent to have an anointed queen executed. Somebody could do the same to her. So she delayed as long as she could. But that is where um, Elizabeth knew exactly what she was doing. Now, of course, she tried to distance herself from the execution. She said, oh, you know, her secretary had put a number of things for her to sign uh, and the execution warrant had been one of them. She didn't realise what she was signing. She blamed him, poor old Davison. She blamed her entire council. She wrote to apologise to Mary's son, James VI of Scotland, but really, it, nobody believed her. They knew full well that Elizabeth uh, signed that warrant, knowing what it was, and that she intended Mary's death. So it was really a pretty vain attempt to distance herself and to escape blame for Mary's execution. And as she had all these rivals and also no children, one of the rivals at some point was going to probably have to take over after Elizabeth. So she needed to name an heir. And a lot of the stories that we hear are her not wanting to be replaced by any of these different people. So we have the stories of Arbella Stewart. We have the stories of Catherine, um, and in the interest of time, I think that we probably can't go through each one of them. But can you give us um, an idea of why she didn't name any of the others, anyone in that list, actually, and why she actually ended up naming James? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely can. And the answer lies in uh, Elizabeth's years as princess um, when her sister Mary was on the throne. Because then, as, as it became obvious that Mary was not going to have children, she was not going to have a direct successor, all eyes turned to Elizabeth and all the attention was on her. And people neglected Mary. And Elizabeth knew full well that the same would happen to her. The minute she named her successor, then people would focus on them. And she didn't want that. She wanted their loyalty. She wanted their attention. And so she held off until literally the last moment. She was beyond speech on her deathbed when she finally gave her assent to James VI of Scotland as being her successor. And she did that by drawing a, a kind of crown over her head when her ministers finally pushed her and said, yet again, for the umpteenth time, will it be the King of Scots? And Elizabeth made that signal. She drew a crown over her head, but only then. We can turn now, I think, to some of the questions about her personality, because we do have conflicting ideas, I think, about how stubborn she was. And I think that the whole virgin queen thing really gives us an, uh, a look at her as somebody very stoic and um, inflexible. Does that sound right after your research? Or do you think that she was a little, a little more tame than it, it seems she's been made out to be? Yeah, I I definitely do. I think she was more nuanced than that. I don't think she was inflexible. I think she was stoic and I think she was incredibly disciplined. She put the interests of her country ahead of her own personal interests. Um, but she was capable of changing her mind, of listening to advice. She did. She relied heavily on, on William Cecil, Lord Burley and uh, Francis Walsingham. Um, and she was an incredibly shrewd woman. Um, she was good at reading the room, you might say. Um, and she was vulnerable. Uh, she did have insecurities like anybody. Um, and uh, so I think the overall picture of Elizabeth is much more nuanced than a woman who was actually quite hard to like from, from that kind of previous description. I think there's a huge amount to admire. She overcame many obstacles, many insecurities in order to become the longest reigning, and I would say by far the most successful of the Tudor monarchs. Most successful is, is bold, but you're probably right because that definitely brings us to um, our next question about her contribution to England. I think this is a great question from one of our listeners because she really was very successful, as you said. But what do you think, especially as a biographer, what do you think is her biggest contribution to England and even beyond that to the world? Well, I think... Uh one of Elizabeth's greatest contributions was to carve out a role for Queen's Regnant. Um, now, having just written and published a book uh, over here in the UK on uh, a history of the monarchy, and it's coming out in the States soon, um, I can absolutely say this with confidence because I, I took the long view of a thousand years of royal history. And so I can really see that this was a turning point. Elizabeth came to the throne at a time when female rulers were viewed with abhorrence. They were seen as unnatural. And people like John Knox kind of wrote against them and, and um, you know, was very public in their disapproval of female monarchs. 
by the end of Elizabeth's reign, all of that had changed. And it wasn't long before people were wanting Elizabeth back, bring back Elizabeth as soon as we had a king on the throne again in the form of James VI. And really, I think Elizabeth blazed a trail for other queen regnants, uh, most or queen's regnant mother, um, most notably um, the likes of Queen Anne, uh, Queen Victoria, and even her namesake, I think, our current queen. I think that we, you've done an awesome job today giving us a, an overall look of um, Elizabeth I. And it's been my pleasure to be able to ask you these questions from our listeners. So before I let you go, though, we just have a couple of like quick anecdotal kind of questions. Correct. One of which I think this is a really fun one. Who was your favorite on screen, Elizabeth? <laughs> this is my favorite question already. Um, well, of course, there were, you know, there's a lot to uh, to choose from. Um, Glenda Jackson in the in the long running uh, sort of BBC drama, Elizabeth R. Hard to beat in terms of accuracy, I think. Um, I liked Kate Blanchett's portrayal uh, in the, the films uh, about Elizabeth, even though they perhaps weren't as accurate. Um, but, you know, my favourite uh, is Miranda Richardson in Blackadder. Now, I don't know if, if you get that in the States, but um, over here it was an incredibly popular uh, comedy. Um, uh, there were four different series set in different eras, and the one on Elizabeth was just brilliant because uh, Miranda Richardson just portrayed Elizabeth as this mercurial fickle, indulged, kind of spoiled child, but, you know, it, absolutely lovable. And she was just brilliant. I think she captured the essence of Elizabeth. I love that answer. I'll definitely check that out. And now what is your favorite Elizabethan artifact? <sighs> so many to choose from. And, you know, I, 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 oh, I mean, I think it has to be the checkers ring, uh, the ring that Elizabeth kept with her until the day she died, and it opened to reveal two portraits, one of Elizabeth and the other, although there's some debate about this, almost certainly of Anne Boleyn. And it's a really moving testament to how Elizabeth felt about her mother. And it really epitomizes her approach to Anne Boleyn. She kept it hidden. Her feelings, on the, for the most part, it, she didn't speak about Anne very much, but it was all about her actions, not her words. And the fact she had this locket ring with, with Anne's portrait, I think, speaks volumes about their relationship. So, yeah, I think it has to be the checkers ring. I agree. I think that that's, that's one of my favorites too. And I always wonder, cause I know that you, you'd even just said right now that, that it's, that there's some confusion maybe about who the other person is, but who mm -hmm. else would it have been? Is, are there other people that people say that it could be if yeah. it isn't Anne Boleyn? There's a theory that it, it was Jane Seymour, which I think is totally unlikely. Elizabeth didn't really have a great relationship with Jane Seymour. Um, or more compelling is that it was Catherine Parr her last stepmother who we've spoken about, she was very close to. But I think the the um, appearance of the lady and the way she's dressed and, the, and Anne's famous French hood, she's wearing that, it's much more suggestive of Anne Boleyn. I think all the pointers are to it being her. I think there's some confusion because actually the hair is quite fair, but it's possible that that had faded um, over the years. And for me, I think it can only be Anne. I'm with you, Tracy. I think, I think that, that makes that makes much more sense. Definitely. Well, 
as usual, I cannot let you go without you giving us a little taste of what you've got, what what's uh, your projects coming up or something that we can, that we can see when I know that we'll, we always put your Twitter handle and such in our show notes, but where else can we, where else can we find you? Are you doing anything that we need to know about? Well, I've already given a little plug for my new book, um, but I'd like to just mention again. So it's Crown and Scepter, A New History of the British Monarchy, and it goes all the way from William the Conqueror in 1066 to our current day queen. Um, and it was really inspired by the forthcoming Platinum Jubilee when Elizabeth II celebrates her 70th year on the throne, which is quite a remarkable achievement. So, um, yeah, I really, really hope that your listeners might get hold of a copy and might enjoy it. And I always love to see people's tweets and reactions. So uh, please do keep them coming. Oh, I don't think that's going to be a problem. And just so everybody <laughs> knows, um, it is already out on your side of the pond, I think. Is that right? But that's here right. in the States, February 22nd? February the 22nd is when it's out. Yeah. We will be getting it. So thank you again, Tracy. Thank you to all our listeners for listening. And we will see you next time on Ask the Expert. Fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. And as always, I will read off the names of the listeners who have participated today. We could never do this without our authors and historians. So thank you, Tracy. But of course, we could not do it without our listeners. Um, Ask the Expert is all about you guys. So there's a, there's a bunch. We have D Withers. Tony Riches, Bitchy Falala. I don't know if I said that right, but thank you. Rosie Lee, Ed Davies, Castle Light, Howard, Howard Davies, Nancy Buchanan, Kim McThomas, Christine March, Marie Mailer, Julie Rowan, Judy Donnelly, Kevin Kind Songs, Khaleesi, Mother of Labradors. That's a good one. Doug Breeden, Archie Michael, Twee Glenn, Sherry O'Neill, Samantha Dillon, Beth Hunt, Barbara Pogetti, Dwayne Moore, Jody Bishop, Denise Wards, Al Pratt, Nancy Buchanan, Amy Rodriguez, Ali McEhern, uh, Tim Neal, Pauline Zhang, Deborah Rines, Melinda Berger, William Lauren, Kiri Wood, and of course our very own Rebecca Larson wrote in as well. So thank you again, Tracy. Thank you to all our listeners for listening. And we will see you next time on Ask the Expert. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. 